Welcome to the Contact Lens Museum podcast series, where each episode we feature important events, products, or most often individuals who have contributed to the modern history of contact lenses. Patrick Caroline, along with me, Craig Norman, are the curators of the Contact Lens Museum and are blessed to have the opportunity to share these stories with you. Thank you for listening. So th thank you very much for listening today. We're really very excited in a new uh, episode of the History of Contact Lenses to have one of the board members of the Contact Lens Museum, uh, Dr. Joe Barr, with us today. Uh, Patrick, are you glad to have Joe with us? Uh, loving it. We're going to have a great time. I think it'll be fantastic. Uh, Dr. Barr has really a fascinating history, and for both of us, uh, Joe Barr, welcome to our recording of capturing your personal history in contact lenses. Well, Pat and Craig, uh, thank you. Thank you for um, uh, setting this up. I look really, really look forward to this discussion. Uh, it's a topic near and dear to my heart, and and especially with two guys who uh, have, have been in the journey with me. Um, I, I, was, I was blessed to be um, born into an optical family. Uh, my father, from as early as I can remember, was an optician. He ran an ophthalmic lab. And I always knew about my grandfather. <clears throat> I never knew him. He died when I was two. But my grandfather... Uh, co-founded the Ohio State University College of Optometry. He was invited by um, Sheard, along with Glenn Fry, to be uh, really the clinical, the key clinical faculty, because um, Sheard, Sheard said that he knew that his skyometry skills were as good as Dr. Cross. And my grandfather had a practice in Columbus, but he also had instructed at the ophthalmology program up in uh, up in Chicago. So Joe, is this on the bar side of the family? Yeah, that's my dad's dad. Yep, yep. And he, at that at that time when I was born, he practiced in the town I grew up in, Lexington, Ohio. He had practiced and was at the college long before that uh, in Columbus. So in, interesting guy. I'm going to be writing a history about him pretty soon. Um, yeah, so, so it was kind of in my blood in that sense. Um, of course, I um, decided in my first year of undergrad to really go into optometry. My dad always told me I should be an ophthalmologist. But, um, you know, I, I, I learned how to be a student finally and, and got into optometry and started in 73. And um, the, the thing that really impacted me greatly um, really in my second year was, was Dick Hill. And Dick Hill's, you know, not only teaching the fundamentals of eye physiology, especially, you know, anterior seg, tears, um, cornea. You know, he was actually doing it. And so um, he was measuring tear pH and oxygen uptake of cornea. And so um, that inspired me because I, you know, at the time, I. Optometry was a drugless profession, and contact lenses were the only thing that we did that really affected the eye. And I was just fascinated by that. Yeah. Joe, if I could ask you something, I was looking at some material, some historical material the other day, 
and there was a reference to Dick Hill being at Berkeley. Is that true? Well, yeah, he got his PhD at Berkeley um, under Irv Fat. Yeah. And that's, you know, and then they, <laughs> they became really rivals in the sense that they approached oxygen differently in terms of fat did materials and Dick did, uh, you know, mostly rabbit corneal oxygen uptake. Uh, and then, and then Fred Hebert, who was our dean, um, had, you know, come to Ohio State to be dean from Berkeley. And he knew about Dick Hill and recruited him, which was, um, I mean, really, our, our program's back was built on Dick Hill in terms of its contact lens knowledge base. I mean, my, my mentors after that, Jerry Lowther and John Schessler, were trained, you know, they got their PhDs uh, under Dick Hill. So we were, we were very much um, trained in the fundamentals of contact lenses in, in every way, shape, and form. Um, when I was uh, in my third year, then I had my first contact lens course from Jerry Lowther. And it was very fundamental, it was very basic contact lens optics. And the first day of lecture, he asked if anybody in the class would like to be to work with him and, and do research in his lab. So after class, I was like the first one up there. I was like the only one up there, which was fine with me. And I started working in his lab and we developed methods to measure soft contact lenses. Those are the early days of soft contact lenses. Was, I think you, you can remember every base curve and power range and diameter of every lens. There's three lenses in, right? Yeah. Yep. So um, then I worked in his lab, and then I, I took summer clinic in contact lenses, and I, I basically lived in the contact lens clinic um, that that one summer, and Lowther and Chester would be doing studies, and when the urgent patient visits would come in, I would see them. So I got to see, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of you know, what, what then was PMMA and CAB materials. Um, so then I was looking at going into practice in Ohio and uh, one summer afternoon, I think it was in August, I was leaving the lab on a Friday afternoon and Jerry Lowther said, what are you doing this weekend? I go, well, I'm going to go visit a couple practices in Northern Ohio. And he goes, you know, when you come in on Monday, why don't we talk about graduate school? Well, that was, that was never something I thought about. Um, so I come in on Monday and, and he, he shows me this program they had designed for Paulette Schmidt, who was one of our faculty members who left and came back and she never did it. And I was kind of intrigued by it because it was a combined residency and, and two years master program. And so I did that. John Pohl and I were the first two guys to do our point in contact lens residency. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, we basically lived in the contact lens clinic. We instructed, we saw our patients, we did our clinical studies. And um, at that time, then John Schussler became my graduate uh, advisor because Jerry left to go up to Michigan, up to Fair State. 
Um, but we remain very close, um, even to this day, Jared Lather and I. And, you know, John Shessler was a great mentor and a master's under him. And they invited me then to stay on for a year and be clinical faculty at Ohio State. And I did that. And you know, was, here again, I'm living in the contact lens clinic. Um, in that time, there was another factor, which which Dick Hill really supported us on because he was a really good friend of Neil Bailey's. And so on Saturdays for uh, about a year and a half, uh, I, um, John and I would take turns going over and practicing in Neil Bailey's practice. Uh, you know, Neil Bailey was, um, his practice was about 50% or more contact lenses, high end, very high, you know, hands-on, um, you know, there was nothing in Neil's office that hadn't been modified because he like was, he was like an engineer optometrist, uh, trained by Hofstetter. And so that was a great experience. You know, John ended up actually before John went to Ferris, he, he almost bought and worked in Neil's practice even more than, than I had. So then, you know, after I was at the college for a year, um, I got a call from our friend Dwayne Tracy, who was at Conforma Labs. Conforma had been our our lab, our primary lab at Ohio State, and he said, um, he said, Ron Seeger's leaving Dow Corning. Um, why don't why don't you talk to Dow Corning about um, you know seeing if you want to go into industry? Because I know we've talked about it. So um, I did. I mean, Janet and I, Janet was uh, eight months pregnant when we moved to, yeah, eight months pregnant when we moved to Midland. Joe, uh, the time frame on this was approximately what year? Yeah, I was just gonna say that. So that was um, 80. Yeah, that was 80. Okay. Yeah, that was 80. Um, so of course that was um, developing silicone elastomer contact lenses. Those lenses were, <clears throat> almost uh, approved for a fake extender where there's still a lot of AFIGs and IOLs were, you know, new and scary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the silicone elastomer lens for um, AFIGIA was, was very popular when it was launched. Uh, my task was to run the internal research clinic. And then um, I was, I was supposed to lead the design efforts to make sure the silicone elastomer lens would keep moving on the eye because as you know they would it would kind of bind up they would adhere to the eye and um actually i i developed a lens that some people called like the russian design i don't know why but um it it was a this massive 12.8 diameter that was big for silicone elastomer then and it had a minus carrier, so it had thick edge that would then go down and be thinned and the lid would just drive the movement. Um, we never really went very far with that. Basically, when the sil sight lens went to market, it was a, it was just a small diameter, 11.3 diameter lens. Um, but I also, in that era, got to know Joe Goldberg very well, as um, Al Corning had bought Conforma and of course, Joe taught me a lot about fitting um, 
that was the VFL lens, the progressive edition posterior surface. Um, got to know David Volk, the patent owner for um, that design, and um, really, really inspired me about really multifocal lenses and how they work and don't work. Um, so then, you know, I was there and, and we were there in Midland for three years. Both of our daughters were born in Midland. And um, <clears throat> what happened was since the lenses were being launched, um, our, our president, who was a guy I really liked, Dan Hayes, he was a Ohio State guy. Um, he wanted me out in the field. He wanted me to work with the marketers more. And that would have meant I'd have had to travel a lot. And I just really didn't want to travel a lot with the two girls being so young. And so um, I came back to Ohio State and um, I had the good fortune of Tom Quinn leaving to go into practice, which was great for me. It opened up a position. And so I came back to Ohio State and, you know, ran the contact lens clinic and taught contact lenses and started a, a different kind of um, research path there. And I, I, I kind of floundered around for a couple of years. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do research wise. Um, it was, it was in that period then that, um, that Neil Bailey and Larry Henry, who had been in the publishing business and had been involved with contact lens forum and ultimately contact lens spectrum. Um, they, they saw me on this, um, this new thing where they, um, there was four of us. I was trying to think the four of us, Roger Kami and I, Rex Gormley, and help me with the ophthalmologist's name that was out in uh, Washington in, in um, yeah. Um, Boyd? No, um, anyway, I'll think of it. We'll think of it. And so, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Mel um, Yeah, yeah, it was. Good, there you go. <laughs> I should have had another coffee. So anyway, um, <laughs> um, you know, they took us up to Rochester and we videoed part of it. And then we had call-in and they had sites around the country where, you know, practitioners went and, and would call in questions. I was, my task that night was to talk about soft toric contact lenses, which were pretty new then, really. And um, so anyway, Neil and, and, and Larry were watching that that um, video cast and um, Neil said that, I, I think we should get Joe to come in and, and work with me editing contact lens spectrum and I'll show him how to do it because I need to retire. So I would, you know, I, I thought that sounded pretty cool. And um, what, what the way that worked was I would go over to Neil's office and we'd go down to his basement and his basement was like, it was like a library of contact lenses. I mean, he had boxes of stuff and books and I mean, he's, I mean, it was organized too. I mean, I got all that, but it's not quite as organized. So um, he can, he showed me how to do it. And then, you know, when Neil retired, he just retired. He, he was done. And so that was the, the background to um, contact lens spectrum, getting started with that. You know, it was about, it was in that period where I transitioned to Ohio State that I got to know you guys through Ron Herskowitz. 
I think we met the first time in Chicago at some meeting. Um, well, and then I, you know, I spent time with you, Patrick, when you were in Boston mm -hmm. with um, Power Tech and the Boston people. Yeah. Uh, so, and what year would that have been, Joe? Yeah, uh, mm, I'm gonna say '84. You know, on a, I was '84. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Very cool. I mean, yeah, it's all about it's all about um, connecting rods. Yep. Um. Yeah. So so then, I, I kind of alluded to I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do research wise at Ohio State. I dabbled in some stuff and done some GP clinical trials, but I wasn't really doing anything new that was ever going to get me into a tenured position. Um, and, you know, talked to some other people about going back in the industry, but we, we were doing pretty well here, you know, family-wise. And um, so Fred Hubbard decided that he was going to send me to the first workshop that was at Berkeley where the uh, colleges went together with some people who were very knowledgeable about grantsmanship and how to work with uh, NIH, NEI to, you know, get um, support for research. And, and, and so we had this workshop in Berkeley and, um, the, you know, Izzy Goldberg was there. This is someone they had brought in to consult. Izzy had worked for years with NIH. And now he was out consulting, and, and May Gordon was there, who was the Ray uh, uh, May Gordon ran the um, coordinating center for um, the oh the glaucoma study, the the big glaucoma study that was done. I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. So. Um, one day I was sitting there in class, and we were going to learn clinical trial methods and this this tall, loud woman with red hair walked in the room with Don Moody and her name was Carla Zadnik. And uh, <laughs> so so they put us in, in groups that had like interests. So I went in the group which was interested in studying keratoconus because that's what I want. You were supposed to bring an idea and my idea that I brought to the meeting was do the contact lenses cause scarring and keratoconus? Mm -hmm. And so Carla would dabble in our our keratoconus group, and then she would go into the, of course, the myopia control group, and or not myopia control, but myopia progression. What is myopia? Because that was the early days of myopia was a big deal, and um, not that it always hasn't been, but um, so what what came out of that was you know, some relationships with people from a number of different colleges of optometry and departments of ophthalmology, uh, where, you know, there was a group of people that had a passion for trying to understand keratoconus better. And we had really good advisors uh, in Izzy Goldberg and, and May Gordon. And, you know, long story short, we ended up being told three times that it wasn't important enough to be funded. And we kept 
saying, we don't agree with you. And we kept going back and going back and going back. Finally, we got, you know, we got funded. We did an eight year study of over a thousand chronic patients. And, um, you know, all the publications flowed out of those studies for, you know, all of our colleagues that were involved around the country. And I got to do site visits all around the country during those times, um, you know, everywhere from, you know, Berkeley to um, Salt Lake City, you know, Umsol, Alabama, you know, all over the country. So great group of, you know, co-investigators um, really, really, really made the way for me as an academic and, and, um, and Carla as well, of course, now who is our, our dean at Ohio State and still a great colleague and, and, and friend. So, you know, that was, um, that was, that was magical um, and, and a heck of a lot of fun. So Joe, so you went out to this, you know, to Berkeley for this weekend or this workshop and you had to come with an idea. I mean, that makes sense. But did you ever, ever project that that idea would turn into something as major as it ultimately did? No way. I mean, that, that's, I didn't, I didn't even understand all that at all. Right. Um, and um, so, you know, it's Izzy and May kind of taught us not only the blocking and tackling of how you do that, but, um, you know, the finesse of it too, not just the facts, but, but how you actually do it. And, you know, it, it helped that we, that Carl and I already had, or I, you know, I, I had a lot of relationships already with some of these people because, you know, they would publish in Spectrum and read it and, you know, we knew each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Joe, if, my, if memory serves me correct, that was the first uh, NIH funded study in optometry. Is that correct? It, 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 was, the, it was the first NIH sponsored multi-center clinical trial. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Boy, there had to be a little celebration when that letter came across someone's desk that that got approval. One of the great things about the collect group is that we we're really good celebrating. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's where that's where Tim Edrington got the name Bernie. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go on, but <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and, gosh. And, and then the zebra, um, that's another story, the zebra. So anyway, it's kind of a mascot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Great people, hardworking people. Yeah. And what a great piece of work, you know, between, you know, the study of the designs and all that topography stuff that was done and analyzed and the fluorescein pattern analysis. That's an yeah. effort to be able to pull off. Well, yeah, you know, we... At, at Ohio State, we had the reading center for the corneal scarring and then also for the fluorescein imaging. And then Tim McMahon did, the guy's a genius. I mean, he put together that topography reading center mm -hmm. in, um, at, you know, Illinois, Chicago, Department of Ophthalmology. And you talk about a guy with a massive brain that can really get stuff done. He, he's, he's a force. So, I mean, with him and Carla and I and May, you know, as our executive committee I hope I didn't leave anybody out it was it was um, it was a great um, 
collaboration, to say the least. Hey, Joe, isn't it um, kind of funny when you're going back through one's history, uh, these little moments in your life that literally change everything? You walking up after class and talking to Jerry Lowther about uh, working in his lab. Yeah. Had you not done that, uh, how different your life oh. ended up. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, I'd have, I'd have done okay in a little practice in Northern Ohio, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, I, you know, I, at that point in time, I, I would never dream that I would have done, you know, the kind of traveling I've done and, and the people I've known and yeah. International Society for Contact Lens Research and, and the really cool stuff I got to do at Bosch and Long. So yeah, well, it's, I, I remember you telling me on a number of occasions how when you were going through these decisions, uh, that decision-making process about Ohio State versus the practice, how your dad and his optical background thought you were out of your mind, and that you should have been opening a practice in a small town because that's where all the money was being made. Yeah, yeah, so so true. Um, you know, and, and yet I I just. Um, my dad was an amazing guy. I mean, he built his own house. <laughs> I mean, literally. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was a very practical guy. We had a great garden, too. I learned a lot about gardening. Um, so, yeah, he, he, was, he was right in a sense that I, I'd have been just fine like that. But, um, you know, he, his life as an optician with ophthalmic lenses. And um, of course he knew about Bosch and Long bought their lab at the end. My, my dad's paychecks were from Bosch and Long. Um, and that was Duane, Duane Optical, is that correct? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, so it was called Reese Optical. Reese Optical, okay. Yeah, Duane Reese was, was the owner, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, family business. Uh, he taught me a lot of other good stuff, though. I mean, he, he taught me how to work. Yeah. And 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 play golf. I, assuming he, you know, I'm still learning. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, at least you picked up on the work part better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah well, well said. Yeah. <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah. Joe, can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, years at Spectrum? I mean, that's when you became literally a household name in the industry. Um, everybody knew you from your editorials, and um, uh, what were the challenges associated with Spectrum? Well, yeah, that's a good segue. You know, it's interesting. I, I never had a um, problem coming up with ideas for editorials because I was doing these other things and it would, you know, inspire, um, you know, things to comment on, including, you know, talking to a lot of practitioners, uh, especially at meetings. Um, the only time I couldn't write was when my dad died, actually. I, I had to just like take a little while off till I could get my brain back together, but, um, cause it was kind of sudden. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that one of the coolest things was we would do those roundtables where we would 
work with a company who had something going on, whatever it was, you know, let's say it was land replacement, but there was a great new idea in that time. Because, oh. you know, we all started in, you know, wear it till it hurts and then buy a new one, right? Right. And um, so I really enjoyed those. I really enjoyed those round tables because you got to meet a lot of people. And, and um, we even did some of our own that, and I said, you know, of course the, the publishers, they want to do round, paper, round tables that are sponsored by industry because that's an income flow, right? But I always like to do some round tables. But one of my favorite places to go and do a round table is Heart of America. Where you, you had these, you know, these guys out in, you know, rural Iowa, Nebraska, et cetera, et cetera, and they're, you know, million, multi-million dollar practices, and they were, I mean, they knew contact lenses cold. I mean, people like Rex Gormley and, and Dave Hansen and these guys, you know, I got to know them that way, and and it, it was awesome. I mean, I, it, it was a lot of work. I mean, I I read everything. I mean, I, I, I solicited stuff. I um, was never not asking somebody to submit something to contact lens spectrum. You know, those, I was really back in the transition from forum to spectrum where, you know, now the editorial staff pretty much controls everything that goes into the publications. And in my early days, it was almost all the opposite. In other words, we were just bringing stuff in from people out in the wild or, you know, wherever they were, you know, really involved in, in, in contact lenses. But, you know, it gave me an opportunity to go to the, the big meetings um, that were starting to flourish, you know, around country vision expo, you know, and, and of course always be at the Academy meeting and AOA and um, Cleo meeting and, um, yeah, I mean, Contact Lens Spectrum was amazing. You know, I still have all the, every copy of, Janet wasn't very happy that I had all this stuff, but it's it's better organized now. And I've still got every copy of Contact Lens Forum and Contact Lens Spectrum. Oh my uh, gosh, those need to uh, be in the museum, Joe. Hey, you know, that's, an, that's a great idea to send the forums out there. You betcha, and yeah. uh, you know those need to be archived and um, kept because uh, there's some phenomenal stuff in those old um, forums. And, that uh, is, that is a great idea. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons for. That. I mean, of course, Spectrum's online now. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, the ads aren't. The ads, ads are the best part, Joe. Uh, the ads are when I'm going through those old forum ads and seeing uh, all of those names and people uh, man, it just brings a smile to my face I, i've had a couple people over the last few years come back to me and say you know do you remember when alcon just as an example had blah 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 this solution or whatever i'd go dig out the ads in and in, in forum forum and send them to me i gary oh. gary Worsborn did that once or twice um, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll do that. It, it'll help me clean up the basement a little bit too. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're very light. Uh, you know, they're easy to easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. to... <laughs> like that other shipment I sent to you, right? Oh boy, no kidding. That thing weighed a ton, but man, <laughs> there's some pressures in there. I, well, I I, I still uh, congratulate you guys and and 
praise you for this work on the museum. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the right thing. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with it, let me tell you. Very cool. It's been a good thing. Hey, Joe, uh, can you fill us in on the uh, Bosch and Loam years of your life? Um, uh, yeah. uh, it was really uh, a surprise to us, you know, when that decision was made for you to leave Ohio State and yeah. this new endeavor. Yeah, that you know, that was just one um, amazing opportunity after another, really. Um, you know, I, I knew I knew a lot of people. I, of course, I knew a lot of people in all the companies, but um, I had gotten to know the guy who was in charge of all of research at BNL because I had been on one of their scientific advisory boards. Uh, Praveen Tile, he's still kind of a mentor, and um, talked to him once in a while. And so, what had happened was, at that point in time, George, George Groby had left to go to work for Johnson & Johnson in the orthopedic business. And there was a guy that they brought over um, from Ireland who was a Bosch Lom guy to run the R&D group at Bosch Lom. This is, um, this is early 80s, no, 90, hold on. Gosh, the years are terrible. Six, yeah. 2006 or 2007, well anyway, it's about then. So that was when, um, BNL was struggling and they had gone from the leader to, you know, having a hard time coming up with new materials and designs. And um, so I got a call from Veen and he said, you know, this guy's going back to work for his family business that was running R&D there. So why don't, why don't you come up and talk to us? And so I clandestinely went up and talked to him and, um, and things were good at Ohio State, but I, just, I don't know, I guess I was restless and I always loved product development when I was in the industry mm -hmm. before and, you know, working with people over the years in clinical trials. And so I went up and, and um, met some of the people, um, met some of the project leaders and people who had tremendous background experience in the field. They had this massive um, organization for, for R&D and so I decided to go and I told him I was going to go and this is like March of that year and then I got this call and Praveen says you're, you're going to see that Washington Lom is going to be acquired. Um, don't, don't let that worry you, you're, you're, you're still good. I said, well, that's good because I've already told people. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so I, I get up there and um, I, I was like a kid in a toy shop with a blank check. I mean, that's why I felt it was just they there was so much capability there. And so for a year, um, the, the way it worked really was the project leaders would report to me and then I would work across the business with the other um, business units and the different units like the tox group and the formulations group and of course we had lenses and solutions so that that was like you know brain candy for me i just i just love all the different you know options that we had and um so then so then about a year into that was when warburg came in and um 
took over to, you know, reorganize the, the company. So leadership changed and a guy that they brought in, well, Jerry Ostroff was the, the president, but then they had business unit leaders under them. So they brought in Stuart Heap. Well, these guys had deep background in the contact lens field. Stuart had been with um, Siba, Alcon, and then uh, of course Jerry had been at J&J. So um, Stuart came on board and we hadn't met, we hadn't had a face-to-face -face yet. I had met him a number of years before, but we hadn't had a face-to-face -face work. And so I, I gave him a call one day and I just said, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you when you have a chance. And I said, you, you, you should know that I've called George Groby and I think there's a chance, you know, we could get George Groby to come back to Bosch and Lom because we had just lost our materials uh, VP. Mm. And, and Stuart, <laughs> Stuart's a pretty blunt guy. He goes, yeah, Joe, I know. I've been talking to George. So, well, that's cool. George come back. George is a really smart guy. <laughs> so, so I go to the BCLA meeting and I'm, I'm there at the, um, um, the booth. They call it a booth or they call it the stand, right? It was at the stand. No, they call it a stall. A stall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm there and, and Stuart comes in and he goes, Joe, I need to talk to you. Go, go over there and stand and I'll be over in a couple minutes. I said, okay. He goes, Joe, I've heard, I've, I've hired George Groby. He's going to come to work next week. He's going to take over R&D and you're going to be my chief medical officer. You're going to be in charge of um, clinical and medical affairs and professional relations globally. Anyway, okay. Sounds <laughs> like fun to me. So yeah, um, you know, the leadership I experienced there and the people I worked for were, 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 were just amazing. Um, Stuart uh, and then Pete Valenti uh, and and uh, um, you know the, the, uh, from from you know the people in the labs to to the top were just really experienced, bright, uh, amazing people. Um, I'm I'm still very close to to a number of them. Um, I was talking to a couple of them this this past week. What an experience! I mean, I. I think, I think I, I mean, I traveled all over the world. Um, Australia a few times. I was in Japan at least 10 times with, with BNL, um, all over Europe. Um, yeah, just, and then, you know, ultimately we, we had a system that spun out some pretty cool products right before I left. Um, yeah, you know, the products like Renew have been just incredible. I mean, um, it's it's changed the uh, landscape completely. You know, that was one of the really cool things we did. Was um, I I I was frustrated with um, our marketing guys because you know Alcon at that time was really trashing BNL over uh, uh, you know, corneal staining, right? And the yep. staining grid. And I went to them and I said, you guys look at, look at what this has done to you. This is really, this has really harmed your business. You've lost it. And they just, they were just like, yeah, but you know, we still have it. And 
we kind of milk it and it's fine. I said, yeah, but we need to stop this stuff. Cause this, this is not harming eyes. It's, it's just a, it's a boogeyman. So we, our team, those Mo, Murchia, Arlen Mack, um, and, and, the, and the materials and solutions guys, we put together this plan. It was only gonna cost about a million or two million. I mean, that's all. And I, you know, we pitched it to the marketing guys because they, they make the spending decisions, right? And so we, they said, this is great. We need to do this. And then of course, when it comes down to crunch time, budgets get put together, some stuff needs to be thrown out, right? Because everybody's got big ideas. They can't do it all. And so I just remember Mo calling me and saying, they're not going to fund this. No, they're not going to fund it. I just talked to, I won't bring up his name, but it, he actually is a very, very dear friend. He, we just can't do it. And um, actually, it was Jerry Warner. He, you know, kind of runs revision in a way. He's a great guy. I love him. And um, so... I said, no, wait a minute. I, I'm calling Jerry right now. I, I'm, I'm calling those guys. We're going to do this. So, so we got some funding and we found this guy, Frank Bright, who actually had taught George Groby. And we, I mean, we, along with Bill Morgan's group, who, who was looking at this anyway, um, really got at, you know, what, what is this? What, it, what is the corneal staining or is it corneal staining? And why is it, look like that why is that green there and um it helped um so anyway that was that was a really fun thing um you know you know and like there, there's you met so many neat people i got to go to ireland a number of times and visit the guys in the plant there and you, you know biotree one day that that material had been killed i got there i got there and and they told me about this really high water content lens and I said, well, that'll never work. It'll dehydrate too much. I said, you gotta, you gotta do a study down in the pill lab. They had a, they used to make uh, pills downstairs at BNL, and you know, um, yeah. Anyway, you, you have to have a very low humidity environment. It was like I don't think it ever went over eight percent humidity in there. It was usually lower. So I said, you have to have the patients wear those lenses, go into that lab, and show me that you don't get dehydration and, and staining from from the dehydration, because we had that with high water content lenses. Mm -hmm. Remember the smile staring? Right. So they said, okay, we'll do that. So they did the study. There wasn't any corneal staining on the lens wearers, but they looked at they looked at the people who were in there with the patients who were doing exams. They had corneal stain from the low humidity. <laughs> the lens was like a bandage. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that was cool. So then the project was a go, and then they couldn't make it. They, they, they just couldn't, they didn't know how to make it because it was too hard to make. So we killed the project because they couldn't make it. And and the engineers over in Ireland did like a skunk works project on the side, like at night in secret to figure out how to make it. It's, like, it's stuff like that that, you know, never gets published. It's just yeah. really neat. It's, it, you, work, you work with so many smart people all over the world right. in, in, a, in a global operation like that. It was yeah. really fun. You know, and I, I it, it worked out good because, you know, the girls were off to college and, and I, you know, I um, drove back and forth. I had a condo in Rochester and um, worked out good. Worked out good 
there. And then, you know, when they sold the company, I worked out good for me financially and some of the other leadership team. I privileged to be on the 50 top leadership team. And um, boy, did I learn about, boy, did I learn about business. I mean, you sit in a room with people like Brent Saunders and, and, um, and um, oh God, what's the guy's, whoa. Well, good thing we're not on camera. I tipped my chair back. I'm okay. <laughs> I might have to see my chiropractor, but um, Fred Fred Hassan. Um, so Fred Hassan, you know, was on the board right before I left, and he wrote this book called Reinvent, and it's basically the the playbook that we did that being out in the last few years to turn around the company. And um, I mean, here's a guy who's got this brilliant business mind, like like no one I've ever seen who, who can sit there with glaucoma specialists and, and talk about molecules with them and, you know, IOP effect. And uh, it's what a great experience to meet people like that. Yeah. When you think about one's career and the, you know, we've been lucky, we've been blessed by surrounding ourselves with people so much more brilliant than we are. And, um, we end up being the mouthpiece is what we end up being, but really the knowledge is these people that surround us. And we're okay with that. We're okay yep. with that, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay being ignorant. <laughs> so, you, Joe, you know what What I think, you know, hearing you, you tell the tale of Bosch and Loam and, and, and about industry is that, that both Pat and I have been able to work with industry peripherally, not on the inside directly like you did, but you get such a bigger understanding of how difficult it is to actually get something to the market and it's so easy when you're sitting in the exam room or in the clinic to look at a bottle of something or a lens and complain about it but it's so complex to get it from the idea form into production through marketing through inventory and shipping and in yeah. the doctor's hands it's just such a complex activity yeah, and, that, and none of that happens without the the brilliant minds that have been in those companies for a long time and know the history, they know the molecules, they know the history, they know the interaction between the molecules and the plastics and and how to work through it. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 it amazes you. Um, you know, a couple of the things I, I thought I'd mention, um, you know, in the er, in the early days of overnight ortho K, um, there was a lot of skepticism ab about that. Um, I mean, you you guys have been leaders in, in that, but so you, you weren't. But um, there were people who who were very they were trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Pat, you did a lot to help people understand what was going on. But, you know, one of the most quoted papers in that area, which is uh, um, Jason Nichols is the first author, was the case series we did at Ohio State. It was one of the first peer-reviewed papers that really came out of um, study that we started with a, a, a few sites around the country, as well as Ohio State. Margie Raw was very involved in that, of course, and, and Jason was. Um, and, you know, and going through then and seeing, I went to the FDA panel meeting where that was finally discussed and, 
and approved. Um, it's really neat to be a part of that and, and do some of the early research and you know find out new things about corneal physiology. A number of us saw that, that pigmented ring in the cornea. I was just looking that up the other day. Mm -hmm. um, you know that was that was that was a fun ride. Um, you know the other thing that happened to me when um, at Ohio State, which was exceedingly valuable, was um, you know I, I was a candidate for the deanship. Uh, that would have been around 2000 ish, when when John Schessler was going to retire, and um, <clears throat> it, it was a great experience because. The, the interview process was was intriguing to me, and with with really great candidates, and and ultimately Mel Ship came in to be our dean, which turned out to be an amazing blessing and and fortunate for me because um, Mel Mel realized that his role was primarily outside to. Um, the university and the rest of the field, um, the other deans and, and presidents and so forth. And he, and he put Carla and I in charge of really like the operating officers of, of the college. So Carla ran graduate program research. I ran the you know, academic program and, and um, the clinical program. And it, it, when I look back on my career, it really put me in a place of having to lead um, and we had a lot of leadership training. They did a good job of, of providing even, and I had had a lot, but it, it really helped me. It, I've looked back on then going to B&L and having to be in a leadership position and how much really Mel giving me that responsibility and, and holding me responsible for that responsibility really uh, was good. I just, it was just, I, I thank him profusely for that opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm really glad I wasn't the dean. I'm, I'm really glad he let me, um, gave me the opportunity to be his, his associate dean. That was awesome experience. That's that's great. So Joe, a couple of things. Um, you know, you're talking about the ortho K years, and and I think one of the amazing things for the three of us is when we were able to pool our dreams and our connections uh, to be able to get uh, GOS, the Global Orthokeratology Symposium. Oh, geez. You know, which, <laughs> oh, geez. you know, we all agreed, you know, going in that was ripe for failure, like big failure. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's so interesting because, um, you know, we're coming up on soon the 20th anniversary of that in 2000 uh, or 2022. I mean, it's just right around the corner. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to see what's evolved uh, over that period of time. So that was uh, the first one was my 50th birthday. Yep. Oh, my. And some people surprised me with a little get together. Um, in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Um, and then to see, you know, of course, then we got shut down by oh, SARS, right? Right. It was SARS. And um, it, to see how that's developed 
and it has helped the field so much you know especially the the you know the with all due respect uh, the non big four yeah i mean it, it really gave a place for the custom lens the you know now especially the scleral lens um, and uh yeah it's it, it's I, I just I love going to that meeting now, GSLS. And just just seeing the well, I went through a lot of you know I just I love seeing the culture there. And then you know went through a number of things. It was a keratoconus meeting. It was a uh, keratology meeting, and um, it started out really being a place for keratology to be. Yeah, you know, the way that's morphed the years is really really quite interesting especially the part where now it's like coming back full circle again and you know ortho k and myopia control and myopia management is back on the front burner it's uh quite amazing um, so joe i had a couple of things that uh i did want to uh, have you reflect on uh one was murray sibley and the connection of Sibley and when there was actually a uh, with Ross Laboratories in Columbus yeah the brief manufacturer of software solutions right um, to remind me where Murray came from was he Alcon who where Bar Barnes he? Hines I think Bar Bar yeah. Barnes Hines which again was a was, was, well, it, was it yeah. yeah that's right that's right good 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 memory um, yeah, so that would have been about, oh gosh, 84. 84, 85, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I had come back from um, Dow Corning to Ohio State and he had shown up here and we renewed our acquaintance. And then um, we put together a, a big meeting to, oh gosh, what was it called? Oh, he was in Columbus, and uh, in Columbus. six, eight hundred people. Yeah, I remember it well. I, I do too. So was that the Hyatt Regency? Yeah, yep. Oh, because yeah. you could over, you could look out the window and see Ross Laboratories. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gosh, I had forgotten about that one, Craig. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, it's too bad that they couldn't um, stay in the game. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so Joe, the other thing is, is uh, if you can reflect just a little bit more about Neil Bailey, I know you talked about it a little. Uh, and before you start, I just wanted to share with you, Pat and I just recently were able to um, acquire and look through uh, the proceedings of when Neil was in front of Congress you know, the congressional committees and- uh, For soft lens, for yeah, soft lens. For, exactly. for soft lenses, exactly. Yep. And Al, Al Gore was chairing this panel, oh <laughs> interestingly enough. Oh, and, geez. and you know, to read the transcripts is just amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a few ophthalmologists that were on the program, you know, that were there and they had one side of the coin and then there's Neil Bailey and, and others from optometry. And, you know, uh, Neil had such an acerbic wit as it was, you know, his, his ability to put in words things that were cutting without you realizing they were cutting. And, 
And but when you would read them in a transcript, they were even more phenomenal. Uh, you know that the way that he had uh, with words, and and of course his ability to stand up for what he thought was right. Yeah, Neil. Neil is one of the. Uh, most intelligent people I've ever been around. And I, when I say intelligent, I don't just mean like their IQ was high and they knew a lot of difficult things. He, he was like, he had like a hundred percent effectiveness on common sense as well. Yeah. Uh, really genius caliber. Um, you know, there were, there basically was no instrument in his office that he hadn't, he, he's kind of like an engineer too, really. Right. Um, there wasn't any instrument in his office that he hadn't taken down to his shop in his basement and um, made it better. I mean, slit lamp, ferropter, contact lens modification units. Um, well, and how about early photography? I mean, that, oh, yeah. That he did some wonderful things there. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he was very fundamental in his knowledge. He was, he was, his PhD was from Hofstetter and, and he, he remained very good friends with Hofstetter. He, he was very good at developing relationships. He was very close to Dick Hill. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was the clinic clinician inspiration behind a lot of the research that Dick Hill did. Um, yeah, and, and Neil was very involved in the early days of, of Softlands and was quite a skeptic uh, about soft lenses in a, in a, in a healthy scientific way. Um, brutal, brutally honest. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, genius. Um, in private, never afraid to call somebody crazy. Uh, you know, somebody who he thought was full of it. Yeah. Um, he was, he was one of the original Dirty Dozen. Yep. Um, I think that was the name of the practitioner group that had big contact lens practices in, oh, yeah. in the country. And he, he really cultivated those relationships like with Harold Davis and and the other massive practices. They had Ketting in that group. and Yeah, Bob yeah. Ketting was in there, yeah. Like Good friends. Yeah. They, oh. yeah. They, they really they really respected each other. Smart business guy, yeah. really, really smart business guy. And he really, um, you know, I got to know Flo very well because Flo basically ran the business, um, the practice. And then um, Neil's daughter, Nancy, I got to know very well. She ended up down in Texas and went down to see her a couple of times. A really great family guy as, as well. You know, the other thing he liked to do is he, he built bikes. Yeah. He had like dozens of bikes that he would make by hand. Um, his, he, he, he always had a technician that he had trained to modify his PMA lenses to perfection the way he wanted it. And he would get very frustrated if they didn't um, do it exactly the way he wanted. Mm. That, that's incredible. The other thing about that man was that he, he had a wonderful personality from the oh, standpoint yeah. of, of being able to, uh, you know, encompass people at many different levels within the field. I remember, yeah. I remember when 
first meeting him and then meeting him a second time and him remembering who I was mm -hmm. was amazing. And then also he just would put you at ease. Yeah, very kind. And and of course, Joe, you have some of those abilities also. I now realize that, that after putting you at ease, it was followed up with, can you please do this for Contact Lens Forum or Spectrum? I get that now. <laughs> but, but at the time, I thought he was just interested in me personally. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed being kind of a tool, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is great. And then I had one other thing uh, that um, as part of the museum going forward that Pat and I are, are also going to focus in on the legacy of Brian Holden. And oh, God. I'm wondering if you could share some insight oh. into oh. the stories of Holden spending time in Columbus uh, at Ohio mm -hmm. State University uh, that most people have never heard. Well, a lot of that I can't say. Right. That I can't quote him like I can. I, sh I, sh I shall not quote him. Yeah, this is a family show, Joe. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, so when, when they came, and when I say they, he, he had a number of his people come with him and spend time with him there. First of all, he was... Brian was um, not a humble guy, but when he would talk about DeKill and the way DeKill received him and took care of him and provided a place for him to, and his family to live and you know set him up in, in a lab, in, in DeKill's lab, um, it, it was, he, he admired Dick so much. And they, you talk about polar opposites. I mean, um, Yes. Brian, Brian's sloppy. I mean, I'll tell you what I mean by sloppy here in a second with a story. Um, and, you know, Dick, everything's buttoned up and white and clean and pristine. Um, yeah, Brian, Brian said some things I can't repeat. Let, let me tell you a couple of stories, though. You know, that was the day. Whoa. I touched my screen and you guys disappeared. That's okay. Um, there you are. Um, so, um, Dick gave uh, Brian a, a cubicle. It's um, about the size of my little office here. It's about 15 feet by 15 feet. Probably wasn't even, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Maybe, maybe a little bigger, maybe 20 by 20. And they had everything crammed in there. A couple of slit lamps, they had um, oxygen tanks, um, weren't supposed to have animals in there, but we ended up with animals in there. They're spent, you know, donut wrappers and coffee cups and sandwiches from the day before. And it, you know, it was his standard of living wasn't exactly the way Dick's lab was because Dick's lab was perfect. Everything was clean, covered, white, pristine, everything in its shape. And, you know, in, in the right shape. So I, I was down there a lot because I just loved being around Brian. I, I talked to him about measuring lenses, which was something I was working on. Endothelial blebs were big then. That ended up being my master's project as well. I got a story about that too. So one day Brian realizes that he needs to say something to Dick Hill about how horrible that room looked. 
and I happen to be down there and Brian walks out in the hall and he looks down at Dick and he goes, I mean, I mean like Brian's totally sincere and, and totally regretful. And he says, Dick, you know, I'm, I am so sorry that, you know, this is such a mess. We'll, we'll try to do better. Um, you know, I know everything around here is so much, you know, so clean and tidy. And I know that's the way you like it. I just, you know, I, I'm really sorry, Dick. And Dick says, well, that's okay, Brian. We'll just close the door. <laughs> I just thought, I just thought it was so, I mean, he, he wasn't really saying it was okay because he said, we'll just close the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was a great moment. Yeah. Well, it, it's so interesting because, um, you know, I, I remember the first time I had heard the story about him even being there. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I, I thought the connection, you know, that uh, Tom Quinn likes to talk about it because, you know, I'm sure Tom's eyes were, you know, open the size of a 50 cent piece when a guy <laughs> Holden would walk in. Uh, and, uh, and, Plus then, you know, again, like Pat had said earlier about your paths cross and things happen and and then who knows where it all goes from there. And that's yeah. one of those moments. Yeah. I think, you know, we all feel blessed uh, by the fact that we got to know him as well as we did. And um, man, I, it sure enriched my life. Uh, no doubt about it. You know, yeah, one, the one of the, stories, uh, the jokes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course. Just, uh, a piece of work is what comes to my mind and and, <laughs> and 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 joe you'll probably remember after one of the gos's you and i and desfon and brian ended up going to play golf on the day after the meeting oh yeah yeah when, okay yeah when yeah. watching holden golf was always an adventure also <laughs> yeah that he could you know whack the ball in far and in any possible direction you can imagine <laughs> Yeah, he loved it, and he was he was just fine with it going wherever. Well, and you know, he he loved hitting it, and he talked the whole round, and and, yeah. and then you play with Des Vaughn, who says nothing. Yeah, you know, he's a serious golfer, except Des... periodic swear word, and and you know, that there's nothing. It was an amazing experience. So, speaking of swear words, one more Brian story. So we're in we're in the little lab, and they have this uh, nitrogen tank, and they have a rabbit, and they have a they have like a couple of so thick soft lenses on this rabbit eye. And the idea was they were trying to induce blebs in a rabbit so they could do some histology and see what it was. So we're in there. It's just uh, Steve and and Brian and I. And, um, and uh, Brian's looking through the slit lamp and Steve's got these lenses on the eye and then he's got this little um, like funnel connected to the tube from a nitrogen tank. So it's covering the rabbit eye and it's just blowing nitrogen on the rabbit eye. So Brian, they, they you know, we knew what the time course was in humans, but we didn't know what was going to happen. So Brian's looking through the slit lamp, right? He's going to be the first one to see it in the rabbit. He's looking through the, the contact lens, which, you know, he could hardly see because they had the suction cup or the, the nitrogen blowing on the eye. And they, they taped everything. They did audio tapes for everything. So he punches the auto, the tape machine, and he's, he says, this, this is such and such date at such and such time, and this is the conditions we're under, and we have a rabbit, and his name is Briar, Briar Rabbit. 
<laughs> and he pauses and then he goes, and Briar has no word that ends in ing blebs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. That is uh, great. Yeah. He's always, always had a zinger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Pat, as we wrap up here, do you have any other things you want to quiz? Uh, just about a thousand. Um, Joe, I mean, this we could literally go on days, um, and we, <laughs> we've got to do that soon. So, uh, but uh, man, thank you so much. This has been just a dream come true for us. Robin, yep. I just want to echo that, of course, that the. Uh, the ability for you to share some really fascinating stories uh, that play a big role in the history of contact lenses uh, and of course serving as a board member for the contact lens museum which we greatly appreciate yep and i think i can speak for pat along with myself besides the professional relationship uh, and having you as a colleague having you as a personal friend is probably even more meaningful than anything else so thank you for that. Well, it's a good thing you guys are doing with the museum, and um, I'll just I'll just end with saying I love you guys. Yeah, been, yeah I love you, love you too, Joe. Thank you so been much. It's been a great ride. You, you betcha. Bet. Thank you for listening to this interesting discussion. Please listen to the numerous other podcasts on the contactlensmuseum.org website or wherever you download your podcasts from.